welcome to episode 275 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. I'm Valerie Koo, CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, and I'm here with Alison Tate, who's the author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series and all-round fab chick. How are you, Al? <laughs> oh, apparently I'm an all-round fab chick, which, you, you know... Are. I'm not quite sure that makes me feel like I should be like doing cartwheels with pom-poms or something. What's been happening in the world of Al this week? Well, you know, I've just been really busy and I hate it. You know, it's become a thing, hasn't it? Like people say, how are you? And we all respond, Mm. oh, busy, Um, Mm. which is really annoying. But generally speaking, as our regular listeners will know, I do try to get beyond that into fair to middling territory. Um, (laughs) But I know, like all the way to fair to middling, I tell yeah. you. Um, but no, this week, I all I can do is is stop it busy. I'm sorry, that's all I got. Okay, well, what have you been busy doing? Well, I've been editing a book, Valerie. Oh, haven't yes, I? that book with you, Valerie. So yes. you would know how busy I have been. So, that's um, true. and do you know what else I'm doing is I am. Um, well, I'm writing some things. I'm writing some different things that I'm that, that I can talk a bit more about later on. But I'm also um, I'm looking at my calendar because I had one of those um, starts of the year where I said yes to a whole range of things, right? So I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. And mm. now I'm at sort of the start of April, and I'm looking at my calendar for the next I don't know four months, five mm. months, yeah. and. I'm really disliking January, Alison, right now. Oh, possibly all the way back to November, Alison. I don't even like November, Alison, very much because I'm pretty sure that it was actually November, Alison, that started all this mess. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I just got a whole lot of workshops and author talks, and there's a couple of festivals thrown in there. I'm also organizing a festival, writing a book, going to Vivid with my good friend Valerie and 200 (laughs) of our closest friends. Um, so if you haven't bought your ticket for that yet, you need to get on it. That's um, right. Tickets are flying off the shelves. Well, they don't fly off shelves, do they? But they're flying off the website. Off <laughs> so, something. They're flying. Anyway, they're flying <laughs> somewhere. They are. There are tickets make sure flying everywhere. you buy your ticket. If you're not sure what we're talking about, Alison and I are going to be doing So You Want to Be a Writer live at the Museum of Contemporary live. Art as one of the official events for Vivid on Saturday the 8th of June and it's not just us but also the fabulous crime and thriller author Candace Fox and also the incredible historical fiction and many other genres author Pamela Freeman also who writes as Pamela Hart and it's going to be a podcast fest and it'd be great to see so many people in our community and um, yeah tickets are extremely affordable and just go get them before they sell out. We'll put the so link go to the, the Vivid website. Go to yeah, and we'll put the link in the show notes. That's right, mm. but or, or else you can just find it on the Vivid website. Yeah, so, so that anyway, that's where I'm at. I'm I'm juggling my calendar, which you know is just isn't that the funnest way to spend a day ever? <laughs> Do you think it's because in November? Because I I think you just said that it wasn't so much January Al, it was more November Al. Yeah. Um, you're just thinking, oh, I've got nothing to do in 2019. Yeah, I think you do. I think, and I think you think, yeah, well, you know, that's July and that's August and that's heaps, you know, like you're not even, you're not even sort of, it's not even really on your horizon. And then you get to April and it's really, it's on the horizon yeah. and you start to look at um, what you've 
got lined up and you start to think, hmm, probably should have really thought about that. So I have been firmly instructed by my family that I am to say no to anything else yes. that comes my way between yes. now and October. So No right. is a good so, thing you know. sometimes. Yeah, All yeah, right. Yeah. Well, we want to have a big shout out to J.A. Mortimer who kindly, kindly left us a review on iTunes and headed it sledgehammers at the towering walls of I can't, which I yes. love. Oh, yeah, wow, so, sledgehammers. Yeah, so J.A. Mortimer, who's an awesome writer in Sydney, has said, I love this podcast. It's like having an honest best friend. Well, two of them who tell you harsh truths with a hug, look you in the eye and say, keep writing, keep learning and be patient. Don't give up on yourself. I usually skip over banter in podcasts, but I find Val and Al and their friendship to be genuinely authentic, warm and engaging. Their knowledge within the writing industry is vast and I'm hugely grateful to them for bringing the untouchable literary world to people like me who need to know how to leap within its walls and be a part of it rather than just staring through the glass walls wishing there was a way in. So thanks. By the way, I've completed a course at the Australian Writers' Centre, finished writing the first novel in a trilogy, survived structural edits, and I'm almost ready to get my author website online. Tenacity comes naturally to me. Patience does not. I hate this fact, but I've learned that the process of being creative means so much more than the end result. It's about loving writing, reading and learning and celebrating all the little wins along the way. Gee, thank you, J.A. Morton. Wow, that's – wow. I think we should probably just put that on our websites. Just as a... <laughs> and if you have that – I'm actually going to... with – I'm actually thinking T-shirts with sledgehammers t-shirt... at the towering walls of I Can't oh, might be an I addition like to our merch range. Yeah, I like yes, it. Yes, yes, yeah, our I non-existent do. merch range. All well, right. It's getting bigger in its non-existent form. Yeah. And also, <laughs> I just need to say, speaking of the banter – I was reading a book last week, and I don't don't ask me which one it was because I read a few, um, where I, I came across Badinage. Oh. You might remember that as one yes. of your words of the week about yes. I don't know when. And also Persiflage. So in the really? same book. In the same book. Can we just take a moment to consider two of Valerie's words of the week oh my God. in the one book? That's pretty cool. That's mm-hmm. with- – I'll have to go and the fact that, that I And also can we really also take note of the fact that I noticed said Yes. <laughs> Very proud of you, and Al. remembered you. that they were words of the week. <laughs> Very proud of you. But you um, back to you. Thank you, J.A. Mortimer. And if you have time to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, that'd be so awesome because then we'll do a happy dance. We might even do it, you know, and video it. So you've got some news this week, Al. Do I? Oh, yes. yes, I do have news. Yes, I do. <laughs> wow, geez, I'm, I'm on fire today, people. I'm just I'm right here doing it. Um, I want to give a big shout-out to the lovely Megan Daly, uh, who is a, a good friend of mine, um, is one of my co-hosts in the Your Kids Next Read uh, Facebook group Yay, and has Megan. released her first book this week called Raising Readers. And it's a love great it. book. It's about how to nurture a child's love of books and it's on sale this week, and it features a small piece by me, a small piece by Book Boy, um, a small piece by Alison Rushby. There are some great authors in there who have got some terrific tips, and of course, Megan's just general brand of common sense, down to earth, um, funny, Megan'sville um, about how to get kids into reading. And it's it's a, whether you've got reluctant readers or advanced readers or whatever kind of reader you might have, there's something in the book for you. So I just want to say, Megan, we love you and good luck with the book. Yeah, fantastic. 
All right. So speaking of um, websites, because J.A. Mortimer was uh, basically said that she is creating her author website, we have a great resource for people who are creating their websites, right, Al? We do. So this article popped up during the week. It's um, on a website called Gin and Co. And Gin and Co is a, a um, uh, uh, Gin Wang is behind the company. And uh, Gin creates author special specializes in author websites. Um, Australian based company specializing in author websites. And mm-hmm. on Gin's website is this uh, great blog post about. Um, YA websites, specifically young adult authors. Um, And it's called Six YA Website Tips for Young Adult Authors with Examples. And Mm. there's two things going on with this. One is that it's a very useful little post for anyone who is putting together a YA author website. But the other thing is that it is a terrific example of content marketing. Um, So I liked it for two reasons uh, from my perspective. Um, But overall, the thing about it that I particularly liked about it was – it's very market specific. So Jin is talking about the way that YA readers um, approach, um, you know, not only their books but also talking to each other. It's a very active demographic uh, on social media and different social networks. And so he talks about the fact that, you know, for your blog uh, for your website, you need to look at visuals. Like they've, it's a very visual demographic. So mm. you want to make sure you don't have massive chunks of text. You want to make sure that when they land on your page, it's visually tells them exactly what they need to know straight away. Um, and he's got some terrific examples of, of that. Um, he talks about, you know, the visual language that social media, uh, pla- social media platforms create, um, the fact that lots and lots of YA readers are using social media on their phones, not necessarily on their desktops. Um, so that you have to bear that in mind when you're looking at the design of your website as well. What is it going to look like on a phone? What is the first thing that they see when they land on your website? Um, and, of course, when on a phone you are scrolling you know, yeah. vertically, you need to think about the the mm. way that the the um the way that the information is fed to the reader. Um, and he talks about the fact that, like with Instagram and things like that, it's a very blocky. It's a very blocky layout, and so that's the kind of layout that that particular demographic gets used to. So you want to basically have mm. that in the back of your mind as you're putting your website together as well. Um, and one little detail I particularly liked was the use of an of frequently asked questions on your about page, because yeah. um, of course we've talked about the importance of an about page, um, and he's sort of talking about the fact that you know put some FAQs there, which is something I don't do. I mean, this is not necessarily mm. my demographic, but I have done it in the past and taken it away, and I'm thinking, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll bring that back again because it is actually quite good because it gives people straight away an in. To the, to the questions you get asked over and over again, which I think is good. Um, he talks about the importance of seamlessly integrating with uh, social media. So a lot of YA authors will actually have their Twitter feed or their Instagram feed on their site. Like it will actually be there, you know, in real time. Um, and that's something that, you know, then is a way to, to get casual visitors straight over into your social networks and following you there. So they're getting new information from you all the time. Um, He talks about the fact that you need to offer unique content that you can't in the book itself. So Mm. there's a whole range of different things that he suggests there from, um, you know, links to purchase books, to videos, to music. Music is um, another thing that YA authors will often tie into their text because, of course, you know, we're talking about that demographic that um, 
is consuming new music all the time as well, um, which is uh, a good idea. And then, of course, you know, basically displaying speaking events and appearances because, again, YA authors can make a very healthy second income out of school visits. You need yeah. to let people know that you do them. You need to give them an idea of what those things are. And he also has some terrific links in this to, you know, what librarians look for in author websites, you know, things that people are going to make people book you. So yeah. um, those sorts of things are worth looking at and also the importance of, you know, looking after your networks, so catering mm. to other YA authors, sharing, you know, sharing posts, sharing whatever. Um, so it's a very good little post, but as I said, it's also a terrific um, exercise in content marketing because it's a quality post. It links to a whole range of other quality content within his own site. It brings people who want to build websites directly to his website where he talks about how he builds website. You know, this is who he is. Mm. Um, and overall, yeah, it's, you know, really worth having a look at, particularly if that's your um, thing. But if you are looking for an, uh, an author website or someone to build it, um, worth having a look at the content on Jin's site as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting how we're saying that it needs to be really visual because there was a trend maybe, I don't know, perhaps five years ago or so where we were kind of trying to make things not too visual because we realised that the load times of all of the images yeah, yeah. was just so, took so long. So we were trying to make things a bit more text-based and a bit cleaner because the internet in Australia anyway, <laughs> hadn't quite got there yet. But now a lot more places have faster internet and NBN and so we we can we can include those visuals now compared to the advice that we were getting maybe five years ago. I remember back in I remember first learning about the internet on a plane. This lady next to me was talking about this thing called the World Wide Web and I didn't understand a word she was saying. But eventually you were eight, I got it. Right? You were about no. eight at the time. No, it was in the 90s, I think. And um, finally I got the internet, uh, you know, dial up and it was so slow. And I think it was, I'm guessing maybe 1994 or something. Do you remember the first site you ever visited? Oh, God, no. Really? (laughs) No. Only someone like you would remember the first (laughs) website they ever visited. (laughs) Well, it was heavy on the visuals and the pictures and back what then it? back then it took like five, ten minutes to load the homepage. Well, it was the Bon Jovi website. <laughs> I was hoping you weren't gonna come out with porn or something then, because that was gonna be really awkward, Val. Super awkward. You're talking about heavy visuals. I'm like, oh no, where's she going with this? <laughs> Good Lord. No, I should have known it was Bon Jovi. That makes yes. perfect, perfect sense. But I think the other thing with visuals too was that um, when you're looking at people, you know, loading them on their phones and stuff, mm. like data packages were definitely not as cheap as they are. You know, exactly. you can get a lot more data for your money Peaks now than you used to be able to. So you did have to actually consider all that. But no, you're right. And now it's, you know, now it's all visual all the time and, you know, video and stuff like that. So yeah. it's, um, you know, all of these things are things that authors can think about. Like, And again, We talk about this a lot, but it's worth reiterating. You don't have to do all of the things all of the time at once. Um, So it's just a matter of having a look at what's out there and working out what's going to actually work for you and where you're up to at the moment and what you might want to do down the track and, you know, all of those things. But, you know, no one's expecting you to suddenly become a marketing and author website guru overnight and be doing all of this at once. Um, Mm. But it's just good to see what other people are doing and to get an idea of what's possible and, um, and how, you know, 
how you might make that work for you. And the thing I really like about this post on Jin's site too is that there's some great links of, you know, good YA author websites that you can have yeah. a look at and get some ideas for your own thing, you know. Emulate people. Emulate other yeah. people's stuff. Model. I would never say copy, but I would say be inspired by. Be inspired, exactly. Hmm. So we also want to bring your attention to a great blog post, which is on the Australian Writers' Centre blog called Nine Essential Tips to supercharge your fiction writing. And some of these will be obvious to some people, some um, not so obvious, but even if you've heard these before, I think the key thing is you might have heard them, but have you taken action on them? (laughs) Yeah? Because that's the whole thing, right? It's well and good to know that these things, that this is a path that you need to pursue but uh, you actually need to pursue it. So nine essential tips to supercharge your fiction writing. One is to set goals. And that's just something as basic as whether it's your word count for the day or your word count for the week and whatever works for you and set some actual goals or set some goals on people that you need to contact or books that you need to read or courses that you need to do. Also try morning pages, which is something that I definitely dip in and out of depending on what's going on in my life at the time. If you're not familiar with morning pages, it's what's recommended by Julia Cameron in her seminal book, The Artist's Way, where you just write three crappy pages. Well, they don't have to be crappy three pages of writing every, she reckons morning. I never do it in the morning. I just mind that sometimes evening pages. Uh, and and to get out just stream of consciousness and that can be really, really useful as well. But also join a writing group. If you are writing in isolation and you don't know other writers, join an actual writing group, whether that's in person or simply online. You, still, you can get a lot out of online groups these days. I think that that's worthwhile. Mm. Um, but also enter a competition. And a great one, of course, is Furious Fiction. It's on every month and uh, you can win $500. It's run by the Australian Writers' Centre and all you need to do is uh, is write 500 words. So go to furiousfiction.com.au for that one. The next one is something that you've done. Hey, Al, which is sign up for NaNoWriMo. Oh, yes, that one. I have done that. You're right. Which I've done is, it many, many times. Yes. Or oh, do you need you want me to actually speak now? Is that my <laughs> Yeah, okay. Sorry, I was just sitting here listening to you going, bloody 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 great. Uh so Nash uh NaNoWriMo is uh held every November. It's National Novel Writing Month. And during NaNoWriMo, you basically commit to writing fifty thousand words in thirty days. Um, and the thing I like about it is that it just it gives you a whole community of people to write with. It gives you a very firm goal. And I would also say that I have never in my entire life won NaNoWriMo, so 50,000 words in 30 days. But I have managed to get 48,000 words in 30 days one so time. So close. I know. And do I care? No, I do not. Because um, whatever number of words you end up with at the end of November is more than you had at the start. And so that's where uh, I go. But I've actually written, uh, drafted several published Several of my books um, have been pub- have been drafted during NaNoWriMo and then subsequently published. So it is definitely worth um, getting that story out of your head and it's a great – the momentum of NaNoWriMo is what I find works really well for me because it's that big push. It's only for four weeks. You can do it basically. Absolutely. And I go uh- – well done. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> and there are other ones like join a book club, do a course and share your successes. But you can read the whole post. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. Mm. 
I'm going to add one to that. Go I'm going to add 10 essential tips. I'm going to, we're going to, I'm okay, going to round it up for you right. just because, yep. you know, for fun. Um, yep. I'm going to say, say yes. Okay. So even though oh. I've just basically announced to everyone, I'm saying no say for the no, rest of the year, yeah. um, say yes to writing challenges that you oh, think yeah. you can't do. Because yes. Um, yes. I just recently got asked to do something that was just totally outside my comfort zone. And my first instinct was just to go, no, because I don't know how to do that. I've mm. never done that and I don't know how and I don't even know where to start. Um, but I, I said yes for various reasons and I then used that terror to kind of just sit down and get it done. And um, it actually worked out really well and it surprised me and I found something in my writing that I didn't know that I had. And so I'm going to say when it comes to like a little writing challenge, if somebody says to you, why don't you try blah, blah, um, mm -hmm. say yes and have a crack. I mean, you might get it wrong. It might not work out for you, but at least you'll know and at least you'll have tried something different and mm. it just takes your writing brain into a slightly different, you know, into slightly different territory. So there you go. That's my 10th, okay? Excellent. Thank you for good. rounding that up. Now good. we have some really good news. Our new online course, which is called Fiction Essentials Dialogue, has now launched. This is a powerful asset for any fiction writer to have in their kit. Great dialogue is like a turbo boost for your story, helping to advance your plot and bring your characters to life. This excellent course will give you the skills to create dialogue that readers love and the skills to create Dial and, and exercises to help you with each new story you write. And the great thing is that people think that dialogue is just the words you speak. But in fact, dialogue between characters, whether that's one character or four characters or whatever, is a lot more than the words you speak. It's also body language. It's also paralanguage, which is like the micro expressions when you react to something. It's a whole lot of other stuff that is not just the words you speak. And that is often ignored by many fiction writers. So this course covers all of those things and you get 12 months unlimited online access so that you can learn wherever it suits you. Now, the thing is for a very limited time. So if you're listening to this episode way into the future, you might not get this deal. But for a very limited time, there's a special launch price for 30% off. So mm -hmm. do not do not waste any time. It's only for a few days. Go to writercenter.com.au slash dialogue. That's writercenter.com.au slash dialogue. All right, I mentioned Furious Fiction and it's Furious Fiction Friday this week. If you're keen to have a creative weekend of writing, make sure you check out the criteria for the April competition at 5 p.m. on Friday. The smart cookies get the challenge sent straight into their inbox. So if you want that, join the Furious Fiction fan club if you want to be notified as soon as the competition opens. Now remember, with Furious Fiction, you have 55 hours to write a 500-word story for the chance to win $500. And you have until midnight Sunday night. So it opens 5 p.m. on Friday, closes midnight Sunday night. And it's lots of fun and a great way to exercise your writing muscles. So remember, go to furiousfiction.com.au. Now we have a competition this week. We have three copies to give away of The Department of Sensitive Crimes, a detective Varg novel by Alexander McCall-Smith, author of over 80 books, including the award-winning The Number One Ladies Detective Agency series. In his latest novel, there is nothing noir about the world of Ulf Varg. 
a detective in the sensitive crimes department in the Swedish city of Malmo. Ulf is concerned with the very odd but not too life-threatening crimes. Injuries to the back of the knee caused by an unknown hand. Young women who allow their desperation for a boyfriend to get the better of them. And peculiar goings-on in a spa on Sweden's south coast. The story introduces us to the world of this typically Scandinavian character and his friends and colleagues. So go to writercenter.com.au slash win in order to enter. Entries close the 8th of April. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. Now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Well, you know, given the two that I read in last week's uh-huh. book, I, maybe I'm ready. I don't You're know. Primed. I'm, You're primed. I'm, I'm so excited primed? That, okay, I'm that the word I, of the week has been on your mind this week. So this week it is lucubration. That's mm. L-U-C-U-B-R-A-T-I-O-N. So lucubration. <gasps> Do you know what that is? No. It might sound like lubrication, but it's mm. nothing to do with it. In fact, it means laborious work or study, especially at night. According to the Macquarie Story of my life. Yes, exactly. You are very familiar with lucubration, Al. Oh, mm. okay. According to the Macquarie, it can also mean a learned or carefully written production. So you could say it a couple of ways. You might say she was prone to lucubration. Um, before her exams, or her lucubration is likely to win an award. Yeah, but you wouldn't, would you? Like, are you going to say that? Like, no one's going to say that. Well, yes, really. they do because they did badinage and persiflage. Yeah, I know, but I, I, I'm feeling like that's going to be like more not really the rule, don't you? The exception rather than the rule, as they say. I don't know. I'm like, I'd like people to expand their vocabulary, so I'm hopeful. All right, we'll see. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Uh, It is Peg Fraser. Now, Peg is a um, curator, well, a a writer and also an oral historian. And one of the things Mm. she did was helped develop the Victorian bushfires collection at Museum Victoria. Now, you may remember there was a period in my life that I lived in the Yarra Valley. I do remember that. Yes. And fortunately, at the time of the terrible Black Saturday bushfires, which were 10 years ago this year, uh, I was in Sydney, but my partner and our dogs were right in the middle of of the danger zone of the mm-hmm. Yarra Valley. He evacuated our dogs and mm-hmm. they went to live into the city with, you know, some friends, and he decided to stay and defend the house. Oh. And uh, it's fortunately all was fine where – our place was but some a couple of months later or a few months later I drove through King Lake and Marysville and words cannot even describe Mm. the complete devastation You, you read about it you see pictures about it but until you're sitting there talking to the people who have survived many of whom lost loved ones and you actually see with your own eyes everything raised to the ground. It was the most um, haunting and um, experience, and, and obviously an incredible tragedy. Peg Fraser um, decided to write a book on it, 
and one of the things she did was collect a lot of oral histories and she has written the book Black Saturday, Not the End of the Story. And it's a little bit different from some of the books and authors that we have covered in the past, but uh, definitely an interesting chat. So let's have a listen to Peg Fraser. Peg Fraser, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, you have written this book, Black Saturday, Not the End of the Story, which, look, I'll let you tell listeners, in case they haven't read the book, what it's about. It's really about the aftermath of Black Saturday the end, over a period of years for a group of people who all came from the same little settlement, you can't even call it a village, it's so little, northeast of Melbourne, um, called Strathewan. And Strathewan was particularly hard hit on Black Saturday. It's where the wind changed. And so they um, endured a a fire front for an extended period of time. 10% of the people in Strathewan were killed, 80% of the homes um, destroyed. And I spent uh, a few years after the fire interviewing maybe three years interviewing people, talking about not only their experiences on the day, but what I was really interested in was was their lives afterwards and how the fire had changed those lives. Why? How did you get involved <laughs> in this? Why did you want to interview all of these people in the wake of Black Saturday, which, of course, was a horrendous, horrendous bushfire in Victoria in February 2009 and... 173 people lost their lives. So why? Look, that's actually a really good question because when you interview people about such a horrendous day, you're asking them basically to relive the worst day in their whole lives. And Mm. and just going back and talking and thinking, remembering it can be extremely uh, distressing for many people. The way I got into it was that I was working as a historian at Museum Victoria Um, for a few years before Black Saturday. And shortly after Black Saturday, within within a few months, the museum set up a collections, uh, the Victorian Bushfires collection. And they started a major collecting project where we had three curators going out into the field collecting objects, but also collecting oral histories. And I was one of those three. And at the end of that collecting project, which was ran for a full year, I realized that I just had so much to learn. I'd, I'd gone in with some misconceptions about what it was like to survive an event like that. And it was really that I wanted to find out more. The collecting project was finished and I was moving on to other things, but I decided to, at that point to do a PhD. So I enrolled in a PhD at Monash so I could continue the research. So and so what- the book comes out of the... P- the book comes out of the PhD. Yes. So what were some of the misconceptions and what was then reality? <laughs> Look, a lot of it was, um, I think, a fairly romantic view of what it would be like to survive a day like that. There was a lot in the media about um, community togetherness, how people, you know, m- Having having experienced something like that um, would have stronger community bonds, that they would feel grateful to be alive, that it would be 
in the end, quite a positive experience for them. And, and I did find many people, I did talk to many people for whom that was true, but I also talked to many people for whom the opposite was true, that, um, you know, community divisions became even bigger, that um, they didn't see any positives coming out of Black Saturday. Mm. And it, so the, to me, the big realization was that it's an, even for people who experience the same thing on the same day in the same place, there was an, it was an incredibly complicated response and everybody was different. Is this, so presumably you did, because when you did your PhD, you did your thesis. Uh, yeah. Is this your thesis turned into a book or did you take material <laughs> from your thesis and rework it into a book? No, you know, I guess because of my museum background, I've always written for a general audience. And so to me, the difficulty was not taking a thesis and turning it into a book. It was actually doing the thesis in the first place. And at one point, somebody, you know, halfway through the process, somebody turned to me and said, you're not writing a thesis. And I thought, oh, no, I mean, what, what am I doing then? Mm-hmm. And he said, you're, you know, two years in, what, a, what a, you know, what's the point of all this? And he said, you're not writing a thesis, you're writing a book. Mm. And I thought, okay, so I'm writing a book. And um, so my thesis is actually, I guess, quite unconventional because I do use, you know, I talk about myself in it quite a lot. I, I use the f- first person. It's a very, it's, I hope it's a very accessible style of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so converting it into a book was actually a a pleasure because I was able to, to, you know, really focus on the things that I enjoyed writing about and in the style I enjoy writing in. So you spend a year collecting uh, stories, objects, things when you're at Museum Victoria and then mm-hmm. you think I'm going to do a PhD in this and explore it further. What then was your process of research? What did you decide that you were going to do? Did you kind of think, I'm going to interview X number of people or I'm going to just concentrate on this one little small town or, you know, what was the structure that you gave to your research process? I decided to focus on Strathewen partly because that was one of the first areas that I, um, that really, that I really noticed when I started doing the collecting. I didn't have a set number of people I wanted to interview because, I mean, as you can imagine, it's a it's a really difficult process for people. Some people, I, so I put out a general invitation. I had a few interviews already in Strathew and I talked to those people. I sometimes went back and re-interviewed them um, three years after the fire. I also was introduced to other people. There were people who said, they did not want to be part of this, and which was fine with me. There were other people who I spent two or three years having coffee and chats and trying to, you know, get to know them a little better. And in the end, it, after the after three years, they said, "Okay, yes, I will do an interview with you." Right. And what was the hard part about the about gathering information? The hardest part. I think the hardest part was not passing judgment on people and trying to. What kind of judgment would you pass? (laughs) Look, 
Well, as I said, there was a lot of community division. So not mm. perhaps not passing judgment, not taking sides would be a better way to say it. Mm. Um, so people were, some people were very angry and upset and were expressing that anger. And I had to let them express it because it's a very natural and authentic reaction to an event like this. But I had to do that without taking sides, as I say. Mm. And did you have a process in your interviewing? Did you think, I'm going to allocate sort of on average this amount of time? Did you have a set set of questions? How did you actually go about the chat? Uh, I used what they call open-ended interviewing in oral history. So I didn't, I had a set of topics that I was interested in exploring, but I really let the narrators set the, the whole path of the interviews, partly because there were some people who simply didn't want to talk about certain things. Um, there were some people who said, I cannot talk about that day. I just am sure. not going to go back and relive it. There were other people who wanted to talk about nothing else. Yeah. And so it was, as I say, open-ended questions. You know, sort of tell me about yourself. It's called um, a whole life process as well. So I didn't want to know about their lives only from the 7th of February on. I wanted to know where they grew up. Uh, what they did, how, what their outlook on life was, because that fed into the book about understanding um, people's background. Because as many psychologists will tell you, you know, um, an event like this doesn't stand in isolation in a person's life. Mm -hmm. It can bring up things from the past. It gets it gets worked into your understanding of the present and your plans for the future. So I tried to get to know people. The interviews went for hours. I, I never interviewed wow. for more than two hours at a time because that's about the limit that people can do before they just exhausted. Yeah, yeah. And I'm exhausted. <laughs> but um, I, did a, I did multiple interviews with some people. I would go back a year later and say, can we pick this topic up again? Can we, mm -hmm. you know... What's, what's happened since then? And I really let people set the course. How many people did you interview? About 25 all up. Okay. Not and all of them. Mm, no, go all on. of them with, sorry, all of them with a connection to Strathewan. So some people who were former residents who lost family members in Strathewan, a couple of people who were relief workers and were very involved with people in Strathewan. And quite a number of people who actually survived the fire. Some people evacuated. Some people were there at the time. Yeah. So how long after February 2009 did you go visit Strathewan? Um, the last interview I did was in October 2013. But I've been back no, no, since the, then. No, no. How Sorry? long after the original fire was your first yeah. visit? Oh, my first visit. Yeah. About a year. About a year. Right. Okay. And a year later, after 80% mm -hmm. of homes are destroyed and 10% mm -hmm. of the town uh, died, what yep. was it? What was it like? What did you see? Was, was uh, Were things being yeah. rebuilt? What, you know, what, what? Uh, or was it a ghost town? 
Well, it wasn't either. There were um, a, so much had been destroyed. There were a lot of empty sites because by that time, most of the um, house sites had been cleared. There were some temporary buildings up. So one of the first things they did was bring in a portable building to act as a community center mm. because they had lost the hall and the school, which had been their centers of, mm. um, of community life. There were people. There were people there. The but, I mean, even 18 months later, there were still trucks coming in and out, with loads of rubble that were being taken. Yeah. So the house sites had been cleared, but there was still an awful lot of cleaning up that still had to be done. It looked very grim, and I knew Strathewen from before the fire. Just I had driven through it once or twice, and it was this absolutely wonderful little hidden valley with tall trees and hills on all side and a couple of creeks running through it. It, it was idyllic. And afterwards, it was even a year later, it was still shocking. Yeah. I remember um, because we had a house in the Yarra Valley, which was, which was not touched by the fire. Um, and my mm -hmm. partner was there during Black Saturday and he he evacuated the dogs, so we yep. heard a couple of dogs. They went into the city to be with friends, and he decided to stay uh, with the house. Um, and it's a day that he will never forget. Um, but about, I think we finally, about maybe five months later, decided to take a drive to King Lake and to Marysville. and. Yep. I was in shock and I do not think that people who have not seen the aftermath actually fully comprehend the level of devastation. Oh, it's and extraordinary. It's, the town is decimated. It's literally raised to the ground. Mm -hmm. It's literally black even five months later. And I don't actually think people in other states, except unless they've been experienced a fire themselves, understand the complete the, the how profoundly decimated it is how 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 much um destruction there is when you're hearing these stories from these people whether they're one year later or three years later or whatever did it affect you or were you able to you know be uh, not desensitized but uh, um, have some distance so that you could collect the information, you know, professionally and efficiently mm -hmm. and accurately? I, well, it, it wasn't easy, but I guess I never lost sight of the fact that it wasn't my story. Mm. And the only time I cried was interviewing the principle of Strathewen Primary. Mm. It was, Black Saturday was a Saturday, so there was nobody at the school. But if it had been on a school day, they might well have been open. And when you saw the ruins of the school, there was nothing left except a bit of twisted play equipment. Mm. And that scared me. That that one really, and, and Jane Hayward, who is principal of Strathewen Primary, and still is, did an absolutely magnificent job. The The story of, of the work she put into to hold the whole community together, not just the school community, is very, very moving. And 
I think that it was um, it was the closest I came to crying. Mm. For the rest, for the rest, I think partly it's understanding your limitations. There were some stories that I could not do. Um, and there were some that I was okay with, partly because at home I had a really strong support for myself. Mm. But, you, you know, you were talking about seeing um, King Lake. Mm. Although I didn't see Strathewen, it was Easter after Black Saturday. We had friends in St. Andrews um, who did not lose their house, but they were surrounded by fire. So we went to see them. And then we said, we need to see what this is like. So we drove from Strathewen up to King Lake and then back down into Healesville. And we had our grown-up kids in the car. And once we left St. Um, Andrews and were driving up the hill to King Lake, it was dead silence in the car mm. for the next hour and a half. Yes. We were, we were just, we were shocked. Yep. Um, we were speechless. Yes, that's exactly what I experienced. It's such a somber and sobering um, yeah. experience because you cannot actually believe what you're seeing. You cannot actually believe that, you know, 173 people live, lost their lives and obviously many more were injured and, and you scarred can't, forever. You actually, you, you actually can't believe that anybody survived. You can't because when you look at it, it's complete destruction. I actually could not believe yeah. that that people did so not that yeah some in some cases not many people but um that anybody could survive you're right what was the most um uplifting or inspiring <laughs> or positive thing about the experience let's kind of steer away from that <laughs> yeah yeah um look personally to me the most uplifting thing was the generosity of all of these people who who were struggling, even three, four, five years later, were still struggling on a daily basis with the impact of this fire. Um, and they were kind to me and they made time for me. And, and I ate innumerable bowls of pumpkin soup. <laughs> you know, people, people were living in temporary accommodation, but they opened their houses to me and invited me in. Um, and then proceeded to, to tell me about this day and what it meant to them. So I I just found that humbling, really. Mm. Um, so you've done this for your PhD, uh, which mm. is a PhD in history. Yes. Are you now going to, like, become the bushfire historian or have you moved on to a different topic? Oh, I don't know. Well, first of all, I have to say that, that the role of bushfire historian is well and truly filled by Tom Griffiths. Mm -hmm. at ANU, who is a wonderful, wonderful writer and thinker and, and um, really has been a, uh, a star for me in, in this process. I think I will move on to a, another topic, but in terms of official work, but I don't think that you can ever let go of this once something happens. We had, um, we had the book launch in November, and... I invited everybody who I had interviewed and local people and really made it, and we held it out in Eltham, which is not, you know, half mm. sort of halfway between the city and yes. Strathew. And, and 70 people came and it was like a family reunion. Mm. So it's not just a job. I can't just say to somebody, well, I'm sorry, but 
I've interviewed you, I've written about you, that's the end of our relationship. I will always have this relationship with the, with the survivors from Strathewen. And finally, what has been the biggest impact on you? What ha- this experience of writing, researching, yeah. you know, everything, putting it together, what has been the biggest impact on you from that experience? I would say it's understanding the multiple ways in which people make sense of things. I it was the most one of the most challenging bits but also one of the most rewarding to listen to people's interviews and i have to say you know a lot of people transcribe and then read an interview but i always work from the recording so i always record i always work from the recording because i want to hear tones of voice and hesitations and how people how the emotion comes through and what they're saying and the um I think so what I learned most was to listen for those and to think about the different ways in which people can interpret their experience and then and then incorporate that into their lives. Well, obviously very well researched and um one of the things that you do is open with a series of quotes from different people about their about how they about their impression of the day or really about what was yeah. what they were doing on the day. And yep. um, and and I and my partner read that that section and was saying that he just it just hit him because that's exactly all the things he was thinking and feeling, as well. Yep. Um, so well done on what will no doubt be a very important historical document as well. Um, well thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for your time today, Peg. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Valerie. I've enjoyed it. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in Freelance Writing Stage 1 is the fastest way to get there. Step by step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus interview skills, industry expectations and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash freelance. There you go, Peg Fraser. And of course, it's always interesting to talk to non-fiction authors because it's a very different approach than when you're writing fiction and you need to get your head in a different space. I mean, you've done both, right, Al? Yeah, yeah, it is interesting um, and it is a different space. It's I, I find it interesting, though, that um, there's too many interesting interestings in that particular <laughs> paragraph. However, so many interesting things going on here. Um, yeah. No, what I was going to say was that I think that nonfiction does feed well into fiction um, mm-hmm. because I think that a lot of the stuff that you learn from writing nonfiction is stuff that you can then draw on for writing fiction. So, for example, um, interviewing people is a really great skill to have for both uh, fiction and nonfiction. Mm. Obviously, when you're writing um, nonfiction, you are aiming to get down word for word, the, uh, you know, exactly what's said, the voice, and you want to basically get that person, you want to stay out of the out of the story as much as you can yourself. Yeah. Um, but one thing I did learn from interviewing an awful lot of people over many, many years 
is um, it taught me an awful lot about dialogue and it taught me an awful mm. lot about voice and it taught me because every single person that you speak to has their own vocal tics. Like, for example, Al says interesting an awful lot sometimes. Mm. Um, so, you know, every conversation that you have feeds into that knowledge bank of dialogue and, and, and how people talk and the kinds of ways that they put words together and how, you know, uh, older people will use um, different uh, phrasing than younger people will use and it's – getting that stuff on a page, even if you write down an absolutely verbatim transcript from an interview, is a great way to actually learn how to, to construct your own your own dialogue mm. that way. Um, and, of course, you know, we've spoken to many, many, many uh, historical fiction authors who you need advanced research skills to write that kind of stuff and to be able yeah. to weave the detail into the story. And, you know, not uh, writing nonfiction is is a great way to learn how to do that, to, to research, because you start to learn what you need and what you don't need to tell a story. And I think that that's, that's really um, important. Um, so they are different. There's, there's cross over they are totally different skills when it comes to actually putting it on the page but they have you know you can learn a lot as a fiction writer from writing non-fiction I think yeah absolutely all right so um what are we doing in the coming week out we're proofreading aren't we <laughs> <laughs> yes there's that, that. Is oh that. my god Reading our book, um, and yeah, I've, it's I've got school holidays starting at the end of next oh, week. Yeah. Everybody will be thrilled to hear me talking about school holidays oh, again. Um, so they start at the end of next week. So I'm just kind of cramming. I think that's possibly why I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed and busy right now. So I'm mm. cramming stuff in. I'm trying to wedge in basically a month's work into the next. You'll 10 be days. doing some lucubration. <laughs> you will. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, look, I used it in a sense. Look at you go. Look at you right there, just <laughs> putting it out there. Yeah. What about you? What are you going to be doing apart from proofreading? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, um, uh, we have this great course called Writing Chapter Books for Six to Nine-Year-Olds, as in it's the actual chapter books for six to nine-year-olds, so it's a course for adults. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a course for six to nine-year-olds. And uh, it, we we currently hold it with um, Leslie Gibbs in Sydney and Sandy and Louise in Brisbane, but we're filming it so that we can bring it to you online. We're not filming an actual classroom course. We're filming, you know, um, Leslie will be talking specifically to the camera, to people who will be buying the online course. And I've gone through the course. It's fantastic. It's so interesting to analyze the difference between chapter books and picture books or chapter books in middle grade. It's very, very specific rules. And we will be doing that. We'll be creating the course. So that's that's Ooh. on in a couple of days. Yep. Great. Busy, busy, busy. Where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, you'll find the show notes over at soyouwanttobeariser.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>